This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. Well, today is Easter Sunday, in case you didn't get the memo. I think it was pretty obvious by now. Uh, it is the day that we celebrate the empty tomb and Christ's resurrection from the dead. The day that the early church actually held their annual baptism service as new believers professed their faith in Jesus Christ. As they were, just as Ethan was, lowered into the water and then raised back up. Symbolic of Christ's own death and burial and his resurrection. And, and while we hear this story nearly every spring the story of the resurrection, I think if we're honest, we still have some questions, don't we? Uh, you may have doubts. I think there are uh, misunderstandings on, like, did the resurrection really happen? Because after all, like, dead people don't come back to life, do they? Uh, unless you're watching The Walking Dead or The Last of Us, then they do, and that's a whole nother thing. That's not what we're talking about today. But if, if Jesus did, if he was resurrected, then, like, can we be honest? Why does it matter? Why was it necessary? We can't just say, oh, it was important, it was necessary, and then move on, can we? We need a bit more than that, I think. Why, why was this singular event so important that it led the early church to move their day of worship from Saturday, as it was in their Jewish tradition, to Sunday and declaring it to be the Lord's day? And not only that, what about what about our own, this, this resurrection of the body and the life everlasting that we heard Ethan confess his belief in this morning as part of his baptism? What about that? We have questions. And our questions aren't new. You know, just 20 years after uh, Christ's own resurrection, the very first Easter, many in the church in the Greek city of Corinth, they were asking these exact same questions. They were experiencing the same doubts. They had this same misunderstanding of the importance of the resurrection, of why it matters and what it meant for them. And so the Apostle Paul, he, he wrote him a letter. He wrote him a letter in hopes of answering some of their questions and addressing some of their doubts about the resurrection, among a number of other things, if you read the first 14 chapters. But my hope is that as we look at his words here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, over the course of these next four weeks in our new series on the resurrection, Alive in Christ, that it would begin to answer some of our questions, that it would begin to address some of our doubts and misunderstandings that we have about the resurrection. And we're going to begin this journey through chapter 15 uh, with a reminder of the resurrection in this opening passage, reminding us the resurrection is real. Like, it is true. It actually happened. Jesus, he rose from the grave. The tomb was empty. But not only that, that his resurrection matters to us. So if you haven't already, I want to invite you, uh, go ahead and get out your Bible if you brought one. Uh, if you didn't, bring out your phone. You can pull up your Bible app. I want you to open your Bibles to the New Testament book of 1 Corinthians. I don't know what I just said. That book is certainly not in the Bible. Did I say 1 Christine? Um, 1 Corinthians. Uh, chapter 15, I just shorthand. Christine, 1 Corinthians 15. Starting off real good, Ash. It's about that far into your Bible. That's what I was really trying to get at to help you get there. And uh, Paul, he begins here in verse 1 with this reminder. He says, now I would remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel that I preached to you. He's reminding them of what he had uh, he himself had taught them just three years earlier when he was with them there in Corinth. 
And he's reminding them of, of, of the gospel, the gospel which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. It says in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And he begins with this reminder, I think for a few reasons. I want to look at three of these real quick. The first reason is, was strategic in nature. He, there were misunderstandings, there were disagreements, and so he wanted to find common ground. He wanted to begin this discussion uh, with something that they all agreed on. So, for example, uh, chances are uh, we might disagree on the best pizza in Chicago. And that's okay. That is an open-handed issue here at Redemption. We can disagree on best pizza. But not just, hear me, we're not just talking about Lou's versus Giorgio's, of which we all know Giorgio's is the clear winner. <laughs> Testing the open-handedness of this. Some of you are like, I never heard of Giorgio's. Come find me after service. I would like to share the good news of deep dish Giorgio's with you. But you know, there's more than deep dish pizza. Real Chicago people know there's another Chicago pizza. It's tavern pizza. It's the strip mall pizza. It's Tortorisi's. Amen? Okay. We're getting there. We're getting there. But then let's be honest. Some of you are like, I don't even know if Chicago pizza is the best pizza. Some of y'all lived in St. Louis for a while. You might think St. Louis style pizza is best. Some of y'all are like, I didn't know St. Louis had a style of pizza. Some of you might think Detroit. Um, If you've ever been through the great state, who all has been through the great state of Iowa? God bless you people. Stop at Casey's, the best gas station pizza known to man. Can I get an amen? Amen. Thanks for just appeasing me. Also, especially, a breakfast pizza was invented in Iowa. It's a real thing. Get that at Casey's. It's awesome. Uh, This sermon is not brought to you by Casey's. But my point is, like, we disagree on pizza. But can we all agree at least that pizza's awesome? Yeah? Or that Italian food is awesome? We can find common ground there. He starts strategic in nature, but his second reason is is practical in nature. He wants to remind them of the content of the gospel, of of this good news. Because if if we go back, there was no New Testament at this time. It didn't exist, right? Next to nothing had been written down yet. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they had not even begun really to write down their accounts of, of the life and teachings of Jesus, Paul himself, he had only written a couple of letters at this time. And see, as a culture, they they relied on oral tradition, uh, taught verbally and and remembering. They they relied on on the apostles' teaching of what Jesus had taught them, or relying on their ministry partners, men and women such as Timothy in Ephesus or Phoebe in Rome, teaching the church what Paul and the apostles had taught them. And then everyone had to go about remembering everything because you weren't really taking notes down with a quill and papyrus in the middle of service there. But what he delivered to them, this wasn't his own personal interpretation. This wasn't his own preferences. No, this was, he says, what he received from others. It's what he received from Jesus on the road to Damascus, right? As he received a revelation, a story that we read in Acts 9. And it's also what he received from the other apostles, spending time with Peter and James and Barnabas. But it also wasn't the entirety of everything about the gospel, but that which was of first importance, he says. He he wasn't taking them to seminary and making them drink through a fire hose over the course of a couple of months. No, he was focused on what mattered most when he came through. 
And so while they, they received this good news, they heard it, they believed it, they, they may have forgotten it. Um, do y'all even remember what book we were in last week? And do you remember Pastor Rob's intro? It was about forgetting. Like, we're prone to forget. It's okay. I don't remember what I preached last week, and I didn't even preach last week. And so they needed a reminder He set out to clarify some of their misunderstandings of the truth that he had taught them. But the third reason was theological in nature. He's reminding them of the importance of the gospel. It was the foundation on which they stand and had built their lives. It was the way in which they were currently being saved. Currently being saved, right? Salvation, not simply being a past event, It's not just a prayer you prayed. It wasn't just answering an altar call. It wasn't just uh, being baptized. It's not a singular event, but it is a present reality that we live in and a future hope, isn't it? It's sort of like like if you were in a shipwreck. Um, If any of you have fear of boats and being out in open waters, bear with me here. Trigger warning. You're in a shipwreck. That's it. You're in a shipwreck. And the Coast Guard comes, and uh, they come to rescue you. And you're, you're still on that helicopter being brought back to shore. You are still being saved in that moment, are you? You're not back to shore yet. But notice the warning here. There's an if statement. He says, if you hold fast. He says, like, as long as you remain on that helicopter, you're fine. But if you no longer think that helicopter is leading you to safety, if you just let go and jump out of the helicopter, the rescue operation was all for naught. They have to start all over again. But at the same time, please don't hear what Paul's not saying. He's not talking about having questions. Questions are, we all have questions. That's why we do catechism. We, We all have doubts from time to time. We all have misunderstandings. He's not talking here about needing to achieve some level of spiritual maturity or measure of faith before your salvation kicks in, before it it takes effect. That's not what he's talking about. Because see, sometimes we come to these warning passages and I think we come away worried that you don't believe enough, worried that you don't have enough faith, worried that you don't know enough, worried that you haven't done enough, afraid that maybe you believed in vain. But hear me, you're not gonna accidentally fall out of this helicopter. That's not gonna happen. God's got you. He has got you buckled in like three, four, five, a hundred times over. You ain't getting out. But another thing I want you to know, you don't have to understand every detail of that helicopter, of how that helicopter works in order to trust it rescuing you. I got no idea how those propellers work. I got no idea how it floats and how it flies. But I trust that it's gonna get me from point A to point B. And that's, that's what he's talking about here. He's talking a bit about that mystery Ethan talked about in his baptism video. We're not going to understand it all. And I love it. Like, it's kind of cool, isn't it? There's so much we don't know. That's what makes it faith. But he's not talking about, 
He's not talking about that. No, he, he has something more intentional in mind. He's talking about you unbuckling all of those safety belts and you jumping out, you rejecting being rescued, you thinking you have nothing to be rescued from, rejecting the gospel and creating your own God in your own image so that he says what you want him to say, telling Jesus when and where you will follow him and when you won't. But he says if you hold fast, if you faithfully follow Jesus wherever he leads you, Man, you're going to continue being saved and you continue being rescued. But rescued from what? Rescued from whom? By whom? How? I think it just it raises questions. Thankfully, we're not at the end of the sermon because that's what he goes on to show us, reminding us both of what the gospel is and reminding us of what the gospel does, how it is both propositional, right, conveying truth, and personal, transforming hearts. And we need to see how these two go together. It's not either or. It's not either what the gospel is or what the gospel does. It is both and. It is, it is truth that leads to transformation. Because see, if we only focus on what the gospel is, which we're prone to do at times, man, we miss out on what the gospel does. We miss out on on this being saved and being formed into the image of Christ. We miss out on this, this intimacy with Jesus, that we miss out on greater faith with Jesus. But on the other hand, if we only focus on what the gospel does without focusing on what the gospel is, we miss out on what makes it good news. We miss out on what we're being rescued from and how he came to our rescue. So we need both and. Make sense? So can you guess what the two points of this sermon might be? We're going to look at what the gospel is and we're going to look at what the gospel does. And that's what he begins with. He begins by reminding them what the gospel is, that it is propositional, that it conveys truth. He's reminding both them and us of what was of first importance in the gospel. And he says here in verses three to five, he says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, meaning to Peter, and then to the twelve. It's, um, it's believed that this right here is a creed or confession of the early church, something Paul would have received from the other apostles. Creeds like the Apostles' Creed uh, that we used in our baptism service, uh, that the early church used in their baptism service, or the Nicene Creed written by the early church councils to clarify aspects of the Trinity, of who God had revealed himself to be as one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, that uh, Tim took the youth through last fall. And what makes reciting creeds and confessions together uh, so valuable to the formation of our faith, or even uh, doing the catechism questions and answers together, what makes that valuable to the formation of our faith is how they succinctly summarize truths found in scriptures. There, are, you guys remember those yellow Cliff Notes book back in the day? Think of it as the Cliff Notes. It makes it easier to memorize, to store in your mind, to store and treasure in your heart in the same way that songs make things easier to memorize. Uh, if you pull up that New City Catechism app, warning parents, it comes with a jingle to help you remember that week's question and answer, and it will be embedded. Or um, I still can't go through the books of the Bible or the order of presidents without singing them, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, do it. You get the idea? How about, you want to do the New Testament with me. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts and the letter to the Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, and Ephesians. 
and then it gets real high, and I don't want to sing that part. It keeps on going. Or the presidents. George Washington, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, James Monroe, John Quincy Adams, Andrew Jackson, Martin Van Buren, William Harrison, John Tyler, James A. Polk, and Zachary Taylor. You get the idea. Is that an Iowa thing? It must be because we're awesome. Breakfast pizza and songs. We can't sing, but we know songs. But whether we are singing these truths or saying them, singing songs or reciting creeds, they're both, they're both founded on Scripture and they're helpful in shaping our belief in who God is, what God has done, and all that God has promised to do. And this early creed, right, it establishes four primary truths of the gospel. Not the entirety, but four primary ones. The first is that Christ died. But what we learned a couple of nights ago is he didn't just die any death, did he? No, he was nailed. He was nailed to a cross. He suffered the most excruciatingly painful death the ancient world had to offer. The cross was an instrument of, of oppression used to suppress uprisings and maintain this supposed Pax Romana, this supposed peace of Rome by shaming and humiliating and dehumanizing those who dared stand against Rome. Much in the same way lynching was used throughout the South in our own country. But Jesus didn't just die. No, it says that he died for a purpose, didn't he? He died for our sins. He died on our behalf, in our place, taking on our sin, bearing our punishment, and dying the death that we deserved as a result of our rebellion against God. He died for a purpose, but it also says that he died on purpose, in accordance with the scriptures. Now, you're right about here, you're like, you're looking at the footnotes. What, what, what verse is Paul referring to here? What, what, what passage? He's not proof texting. He doesn't have a specific verse or passage in mind. And even when you see uh, Paul or other writers in the, in the New Testament refer, just use a, a little piece of an Old Testament verse, very seldom do they just mean those words. They mean the broader context of the passage that they sit in. No, instead what Paul's doing here, he's looking back at, at the entire trajectory of the Old Testament Hebrew Scriptures. The, the entire Mosaic law, it, it all pointed to a once and for all sacrifice, the writer of Hebrews says. To a sinless, spotless Lamb of God, John the Baptist says, who came to take away the sin of the world. He, the suffering servant, Isaiah writes about, that was despised and rejected by the very people whom he came to save. Who bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. That right there was God's rescue plan. Not a plan B, not a plan C. That was always the plan. And, and not just for you. Not just for us, for all humanity, for all of creation. Rescuing us from a shipwreck of our own making. He just didn't send the helicopter we were expecting. Instead, he sent Jesus showing his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, amen? And to stress that Jesus truly died and therefore truly lived, the second thing this creed says is that he was buried. This is a reminder that Jesus did not simply appear human, but he became human, adding the fullness of humanity to his divinity as the eternal word of God became flesh and dwelt among us as one of us. He did not only appear human, but he also did not simply appear dead. He, he was not unconscious. 
No, they took his dead, lifeless body off the cross on Friday afternoon. And they laid it in a tomb where he remained on Sabbath, on Saturday. Until Mary Magdalene arrived on Sunday morning to find the stone rolled away and the tomb was empty. And that's because he was raised on the third day. That is the third truth of the gospel we see here. He was not simply resuscitated from a state of unconsciousness. They didn't do CPR on Jesus. He was resurrected back to life from the dead. But also not in the way that you might think of with Lazarus. Lazarus returned to life, but he eventually died again. But, but Jesus, he, he crossed through death. He crossed through to the other side, all in accordance with Scripture, it says again. Everything happened just as Jesus told his disciples just a few days or weeks ago as they began their final journey to Jerusalem. That everything that he would experience, being delivered over to the Gentiles, over to the Romans, being mocked, being flogged, being killed, and on the third day, rise. It was all to accomplish everything that was written about him by the prophets. Prophets such as Hosea that we just looked at over these last few weeks. God having torn down Israel, he says in chapter 6, and after two days he will revive us, and on the third day raises up. Prophets like Daniel who says that many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall one day awake. Prophets like Isaiah who says that one day the dead shall live, their bodies risen. Prophets like Ezekiel who said that, that God breathed life in, into a valley of dry bones that they may live, opening the graves, the dead raised from their graves. The disciples knew the scriptures. They heard Jesus say what he said. And yet, when Peter and John arrived at the tomb on Sunday morning, when they saw that it was empty, John very vulnerably and honestly writes in his account that they still did not yet understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. They still didn't get it. Even they had questions. They had doubts. They had misunderstandings. And they spent the last three years with Jesus. It said it wasn't until after the resurrection when Jesus appeared to his disciples that it says that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures that they had memorized but didn't know, that they had stored in their mind but hadn't quite impacted their entirety of their heart, of how they were fulfilled in him and of how they were fulfilled by him. And this was all a part of God's great reclamation project to redeem and renew his once very good creation just as he said he would do back in the Garden of Eden. Christ's death having delivered us from the present evil age of sin, as Paul writes to the church in Galatia. His resurrection introducing the coming of the new age that would reverse the effects of the present evil age, as N.T. Wright writes in his book on the resurrection of the Son of God. This was the singular moment. But then he appeared. He revealed himself he was seen by Peter, by Cephas, and then by the 12, referring here to the disciples. Now, he's not actually referring to 12 specific individuals. Um, like, Judas has died by this point. He's referring to them as a collective, as a group known as the 12. Sort of like um, uh, in college football, we had the Big Ten Conference. The Big Ten used to have 10 teams. Now it has 14, and soon to have 16. Still the Big Ten Conference. Meanwhile, the Big 8 became the Big 12 when they added four teams, but now they only have 10. Big 10's got 14, the Big 12's got 10. 
Clearly, college math works differently than what I was taught. Just so you know, though, the SEC is still the Southeastern Conference. They have not expanded beyond that yet. But they saw the resurrected Jesus. And then he said, he adds to this, he keeps on going, saying, then they appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters all at one time. And that if there was any doubt as to the, the truth of this, they could go and they could talk to the eyewitnesses because many of them were still alive, given that this was written just some 20-some years after the event had taken place. He says, although some had since passed away, some had fallen asleep and died. And he says, then he appeared to James, um, not the apostle, but the half-brother of Jesus, who uh, he was not a follower of Jesus uh, uh, while Jesus was alive. But then he appeared to him. And something changed in the heart of James. And he went on to become the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Paul would refer to him as a pillar of the church. And then he appeared to all the apostles, or as, as Eugene Peterson writes in the message, the rest of those he commissioned to represent him. Referring to this, this broader group of those who followed Jesus, who sat under his teaching and who were commissioned and sent by Jesus. Those uh, including Matthias and, Bar and Barnabas. But did you notice somebody missing from that list? There, there were more than what Paul says. That specifically, that there's women missing from this list. And we know that women followed Jesus. Women like Mary who, who sat at his feet and, and learned from him. Uh, we know Mary Magdalene, she was the first that, that Jesus appeared to on Easter morning. We know that Paul valued women. He, he considered Priscilla a, a peer. A co-worker in Christ, not some subordinate, but a peer. And, and he entrusted Phoebe uh, with his letter to Rome where she read it and explained it to the church, church teaching them all about what Paul had written. So, so why then did Paul leave them out? It's most likely because of the reliability of their witness in supporting his argument. As, as women in this culture were unfortunately not viewed as equals, not allowed to present testimony in a court of law, and not deemed reliable. And so while he doesn't mention them by name, they're clearly in mind as he mentions the 500. Junia is clearly in mind as he mentions all the apostles as he writes in the close of his letter to Romans. And I say that because I think it's, if we don't talk about it, it's a little hang up there. They're included in there. But what we see here, what is of first importance is that Christ's death proven by his burial and Christ's resurrection proven by his appearing. That is what the gospel is. That is the good news of the truth of the gospel, the truth that it conveys. And now having delivered to you what I have received from reading God's word to listening to God's spirit and learning from God's people, would you do this with me? I want to invite you to read this early church creed with me. Will you do that? Let's start here. Read this with me. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. But he not only reminds them of what the gospel is, he also reminds them of what the gospel does. And it's not simply transactional. It's not an, an equation showing how Christ canceled our debt to God, but how we are transformed, how it transforms hearts. And you're going to notice the letter take on a more personal and intimate and vulnerable tone because the gospel was personal to Paul. 
he says in verse 8, he writes, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me, appearing to Paul as he traveled from Jerusalem north to Damascus. And he refers to himself here, interestingly, as, as one untimely born, which on one hand, like, kind of makes sense. Like, Paul was late to the party, right? Paul was not a follower of Jesus when he was alive. He, this was all well after, not just the resurrection, but the ascension when, when he saw Jesus. But there's more to this phrase. See, um, the, the phrase in the original Greek uh, means a premature birth. Uh, think about a, a miscarriage or a stillbirth where a, a child is born but no longer living. That's who Paul refers to himself as. Because he recognizes how at that point in his life that he was spiritually dead. He says in verse 9, for I am the least of the apostles. Unworthy, he says, to be called an apostle. That's like one verse that I've highlighted and underlined in my Bible because I get it. The, um, when I became lead pastor at Redemption seven years ago, I, I felt like I was probably the least qualified pastor in the 2,000-year history of the church. And that's a big history. Like, that's a big list to be on top of. Somebody's going to be on the top of the list of the masters right now. And that's like, you know what, 100 people? I'm talking about the top of a list of 2,000 years. I, uh, when I became pastor, I, I had no vocational ministry experience. I'd never done this before. Uh, I'd been a lay elder for five years. I worked at Motorola for 17 years, but never here. I had no Bible degree. I had an undergrad in electrical engineering, so I knew a lot about spreadsheets. Um, I kind of still could remember my resistor colors if I got my dialer resistor out. But, but Paul, man, Paul, Paul was a prized pupil of his Jewish rabbi. And he was first in his class. He had the most extensive resume known to man at the time. But what made him feel unworthy, he says, is because I persecuted the church of God. Paul was like a right-wing zealot fanatic, violently trying to destroy the church, he says himself in his letter to the church in Galatia. He was a mercenary who oversaw the stoning of Stephen. He was a, a bounty hunter who was on his way to Damascus to round up and arrest followers of the way, these supposed followers of Jesus. Right? There was no life in him, only death. He was born void of spiritual life. There was nothing about him worthy of becoming an apostle. And yet, that's what makes God's grace shine all the more brightly, doesn't it? He declares in verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Not what I've done. By the grace of God, I am what I am. As God breathed life into his lifeless form of one on timely born. This former assassin turned apostle. He was no longer persecuting the church, but preaching to the church. He was transformed by the grace of God from an enemy of God into a, a child of God. He was beloved by the Father. And what I love is how Paul knows it was not because of anything he had done, but in spite of everything that he had done. And that's how God's grace works, though, isn't it? That's what makes it good news. You can't do anything. You don't deserve it. You didn't earn it. It is entirely undeserving. He goes on to say that his grace towards me, it was not in vain. It was not wasted. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, which, can we be honest, there's times where you read Paul and you're like, sounds like he's getting a little arrogant. Needs somebody to come and bonk him upside the head. 
Keep reading. He says, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. It was the grace of God working in me that enabled me to do everything that I've done. This, this gospel, this good news, it was personal to him. The power of God working in him and through him, God's spirit dwelling within him, having transformed his mind and his heart, his thoughts and his desires, giving all glory to God, closing this passage in verse seven, saying, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. His singular soul desire was that people would encounter the risen Christ. He didn't care if it was by his preaching or Apollos' preaching or, or Peter's preaching or somebody else. He didn't care who. Because he knew, he says earlier in this letter, he knew that while he was the one that came first and planted seed in Corinth, he knew that Apollos came and he watered the seed that he had planted. But in spite of all that, he knew it was God that gave the growth, that God was the one that was going to get all the glory. Amen? Some of you have come here from other churches, from other states, from other cities, and I pray that we will continue to water the seed that was planted by others. Some of you will uh, move from here on to another city, another state, as jobs take us away. And I pray that the seed planted here will be watered by others there. It doesn't matter. God gets the glory. God gets the glory. We got two, there's three churches on this corner. There's like a bazillion churches on Golf Road. You, don't, you can like walk two steps and you come across four more churches. We're all on the same team. We're all preaching the same message of the resurrection this morning. We're all trying to point people to Jesus. Knowing that angels rejoice over even just one sinner who repents and begins to follow Jesus. Embracing what the gospel is, this display of God's love and receiving what the gospel does, the transforming effect of God's love in you as his beloved, chosen, adopted child. Man, I think we all need that reminder this morning of that promise that it is as true for you as it was for Paul. Whether you are hearing it for the first time or the hundredth time, we need to be reminded that no matter how dead you may feel inside, there is life and renewal in Christ. That no matter how far you have fallen or how often you have failed, there is grace and forgiveness in Christ time and time and time again without limit. And that no matter how far you strayed or how long you've been away, there is love and acceptance in Christ. But you will only find that in Christ. You won't find it anywhere else. You won't find it in yourself. You won't find it in something or someone else. Only in Christ. Praise Him. Knowing that if you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart God raised Him from the dead, guess what? You are saved. You have been rescued. You are on that helicopter with the rest of us. It's a really big helicopter. And it leads to renewal. It leads to life. Not some life that we experience later, but life we experience now. Eternal life begins the moment you begin to follow Jesus. Knowing that it is by His grace alone that you are what you are a child of God, that by his grace alone, we are who we are, the people of God, the body of Christ, the church. And you know what? His grace towards you, towards me, towards us, 
It was not in vain. But by the power of the Spirit working in us and through us, our lives lived in Christ by His Spirit. Even we bring glory to God. That's what the gospel is. That's what the gospel does. That's why the resurrection matters. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.